From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. The 56th New York Film Festival continues through October 14th, with daily screenings of the most exciting new films from around the world. Every day during the festival, we host free talks in our amphitheater, with upcoming events featuring Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan, Alex Ross Perry, Tamara Jenkins, and more. Head to filmlink.org for the full lineup. A highlight from week one was our conversation with legendary documentarian Frederick Wiseman, whose latest Monrovia, Indiana, has premiered in the festival's main slate. The conversation was moderated by Kent Jones. Let's go to that now. Fred, I have to say that it's, it's, I was struck last night uh, when we were doing the, uh, or yesterday when we were doing the Q&A for Monrovia, that many of the questions that you get about your work over a span of many years tend to have a certain sameness to them <laughs> um, about what, about the presence of the camera, does it affect the action? That's, that's one that comes up fairly often. Um, and also about people, more recently, people trying to resist the impulse to act in front of the camera. Your, your answer to that it's is very interesting. The same. Yeah, yeah, but it's also really interesting because right. you think that people just, are, nobody's really that good <laughs> an actor. Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't think, uh, yeah, I mean, people don't have the capacity to become some of the different that quickly, if they did, there'd be no need for psychotherapists. Uh, um, uh, and, and, you know, my little joke is not everybody's Meryl Streep. And, and uh, <laughs> thank God. Uh, uh, but uh, the, uh, the sequence I, I, I use to illustrate my point of view about that is a sequence from Law and Order, which was a film shot in 1968 with the Kansas City, Missouri police. And there's, uh, in Kansas City at the time, in order to make an arrest uh, for prostitution, the police had to have a price and an act. Um, so it required the undercover policeman to pick up a woman, go back to the hotel, uh, uh, undress, and presumably at the last minute make the arrest. Uh, uh, the the undercover, undercover policeman did that, started to lead the woman down the stairs of the seedy hotel. Uh, she knocked him down the stairs and fled. He took out his walkie-talkie and, and uh, called a vice squad car, and we were in the vice squad car. Uh, came to the hotel, and a bellboy said she uh, fled to the basement. And uh, I happened to have a sun gun, which is an artificial light with me that night, and the police found her hiding under the chairs, uh, some old chairs in the basement, and, and dragged her out, and one of the policemen started to strangle her. Um, and another policeman was holding her arms. And after about 20 seconds, they let her go. Uh, and she said to the policeman who was holding her arms, he, referring to the strangler, was trying to strangle me, and the other policeman said, oh no, you're just imagining it. Uh, and you, we, the viewers, have, 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 uh, have seen the effort in, in the film. And, but I don't, I'm, I'm not bringing this up to illustrate police violence, uh, but to, as an example, as an extreme example, why I think the camera doesn't change behavior. I mean, you could argue that if we hadn't been there filming, the policeman would have killed her, 
but I don't think that's the case, because he, he says to her, one of the policemen says to her at that point, don't fuck with our boys. Next time you get picked up for prostitution, next time you get picked up, he didn't say prostitution, go down to the station house, pay your $50 fine, get fingerprinted, your picture will be taken, and you'll be back on the street in a half an hour. But don't fuck with our boys. So I think the policeman was strangling her or for 20 seconds, 20 or 30 seconds, because he felt that he had to punish her for uh, knocking his buddy down the stairs. And he felt that was a completely appropriate thing to do under the circumstances. And I think that's only, it's an extreme example of what's characteristic of all of us in the sense we act appropriately for the situation that we're in. Mm -hmm. uh, and that policeman thought, without any, obviously knew he was being photographed and recorded, but he thought that was okay. But we all, I think by and large, think our behavior is okay, but don't necessarily see it the way somebody else sees it. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so th that's the illustration that I, I use in response to the question of does the camera change behavior? And I think by and large, if people don't want their picture taken, they go like this or they walk away. Mm -hmm. If they agree, they go about their business. Yeah. And is there, are there cases, I would imagine that there are, when you start filming people and you get into situations where they are very self-conscious at first in front of the camera and then lose the self-consciousness? But that doesn't and You happen. don't use it in the movie. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's very rare that anybody refuses to be photographed. Yep. It's very rare that anybody acts for the camera. When you're making documentaries, uh, you're in no different position than anybody else who meets a lot of people, whether you're a teacher or a used car salesman or a doctor or, or whatever profession you have. Uh, in order to survive, you have to have a good bullshit meter. And, and if I think that somebody's acting for the camera, I mean, I like to think I have a good bullshit meter. If I think somebody's acting for the camera, I stop. Yeah. And if I don't realize it till I get to the editing room, I don't use it. Mm. But in my experience, it happens so infrequently yeah. as to not be a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of raises the issue, it, it, or it's related to the issue, I think, of um, uh, the degree to which your work is constructed. You, for instance, were talking last night about the fact that when you're filming um, an event like the, the town council meetings in, in, or the town planning meetings, right? planning commission meetings in Monrovia, Indiana, you have your cameraman, you direct him to um, shoot participants when they're just kind of reacting to stuff that you know you're not going to use so that you'll have cutaways. Um, and, well, the film is know. completely constructed. Right. I, I would really make the argument that it's just another form of fiction. And yeah. the, the distinction between fiction and documentary uh, that's traditionally made, I think, is completely, I mean, in many ways, is completely arbitrary because, you know, we're all trying to make movies. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I prefer that word than documentary, which is sort of a tame, stale word, you know, uh, which to me carries the connotation, you know, the, it's a documentary and therefore it's good for you to see it. It's a bit like x -Lax. <laughs> uh, 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 uh So, you know, I, I prefer to say that I make movies. Uh, but the making of one of my movies is the reverse of the making of a fiction film. A fiction film, you do a script, you do a storyboard, and 90, 95% of what's shot is, is, is figured out in advance. 
for my films, I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't even know the themes of the film. I take the gamble that if I hang around a place long enough, I'll find enough sequences out of which I can construct a film. Uh, I have no idea of the point of view. I have no idea of the themes that all emerges as a, as a consequence of the editing. Uh, I, I don't, uh, the sequences in the final film, ha, uh, the order of the sequences in the final film have absolutely nothing to do with the order in which they're shot. Yep. I mean, begin the film on something on the first day and then something on the last day. Uh, frequently, uh, uh, an event in the film will take, will be an hour and a half. See, some of the meetings in Ex Libra, some of the uh, meetings of the president of the library with his senior staff, it might be an hour and a half. I may end up using eight minutes in the film. That eight minutes is not a consecutive eight minutes. It's two minutes here, 30 seconds there, 20 seconds there, a minute and a half there, edited together to appear as if it's taking place the way you're watching it. Uh, but that's, to the extent that the sequence works, it works because it's a fiction, which gives you the illusion or for 20 seconds or so that it took place the way you're watching it. Mm -hmm. So my job, I'm giving you a long answer to the question, but my job as the editor is I have to think that I understand what's going on in every sequence. Whether I'm right or wrong, in a sense, almost is irrelevant, but I have to think that I understand what's going on in a sequence, because if I don't understand what's going on, I can't make the decision whether I want to use it. Yeah. I won't know how to cut it down to a usable form, and I won't know where to place it in the structure of the film. So whether I'm right or I'm wrong, I, I have to convince myself that I have that understanding in order to make the thousands of decisions that are involved in, in finding the film. Mm -hmm. And in compressing things. In like compressing, it. well, yeah. for, for Monrovia, uh, for example, I had 120 hours of rushes. Mm -hmm. The final film is two hours and 20 minutes. So, I don't know, I haven't done the math, but it's a shooting ratio of about 57 to 1. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, I'm using roughly 1% of the material. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that 120 hours often seems, whenever you, when you say it, like, to some people, um, a very daunting figure, but it's common, right? Well, that's, I mean... That's the ratio. I mean, that's I'm the accustomed work. to it. It's yeah. a daunting, I mean, uh, but... I know from past experience the way you get the film done is sit in the chair, get fed intravenously till it's done. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah. That's why Truffaut said that films are made well, in a fugue state. Works. Oh, sorry. You're okay. Uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. I was really, uh, you know, when we were just looking at the first couple minutes of Monrovia just now, the thing that really, uh, and it struck me the first time I saw it, but even more um, dramatically this time, um, just in those first few minutes was the sound edits at the, in, in, in the opening as you're setting up the, the sense of place. And I think that sound editing has definitely become, um, that's something that's really benefited from the digital, um, from digital uh, advance, right? First of all, they had a very good sound man. Yeah. Uh, What's the name of your sound man in France, right? Yeah. Hmm? Who, who's, your, who's your sound man? His name is Fred Wiseman. Oh, yeah. Uh, 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 <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> I mean your mixer. Uh, well, the mixer is Emmanuel Crozet. Okay, there we uh, go. Yeah. Uh, 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 and, uh, <laughs> no, 
No, I, I work very hard in this sound, both in recording it and in, in, in uh, preparing for the mix. Yeah. But in terms of the, the, the fluidity of the images and the montage, at, you know, as you're setting up the town, and this is true of, of the, the way that you move in and out of, of different yeah. scenes. Well, and, you, know. I mean, you, you try, I mean, you learn over the years, and the effort is to create the illusion, however transitory, that one thing does lead to another. Uh, and that it's meant to be that way, when of course it didn't happen that way, and 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 the sound uh, overlaps, the connections, the use of the sound between sequences is extremely important to a, to the extent one is successful in achieving that illusion. Yeah. Um, when you made Monrovia, Indiana, when you approached the subject. I guess that this is a question that's probably going to come up a lot and probably has already. Did you decide, gee, I want to make a movie in Trump country? Well, I didn't quite think of it that way. I, I wanted to, I mean, partially that's so. I wanted to make a movie in a small town in the Middle West, which was primarily an all-white community. Mm -hmm. So That's, yeah. okay, that's Trump and you country. Shot it, and you shot it in early 2017. Hmm? You shot it in early 2017. In early, uh, yeah, in the spring and early summer of 2017. Yeah. Uh, and Monrovia did vote, according to Wikipedia, 65% for Trump. Uh, but there was no conversation about politics mm -hmm. that I heard while I was there. And I don't think people were evasive. I think they just didn't yeah. talk about it because you, most of the time you were around, they're not shooting and you're not shooting. Um, but I think political issues are implicit in both the structure and, and, and the, and the uh, sequences, uh, the choice of sequences in the film. Mm -hmm. In the same way, Ex Libris... I didn't make Ex Libris as a political film. I finished it two days after Trump was elected. But because Trump represents the opposite of everything the library stands for, learning, enlightenment, helping people, aid to immigrants, uh, uh, general c c preserving history, uh, scientific experiment, uh, conserving art, etc. You, uh, you can keep going. If it, you want it, 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 it instantly becomes an anti. Uh, it instantly becomes a, a, a political film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and something else that 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 does uh, a kind of question that arises around your films um, fairly often is the themes, and of course the themes for you are what you find when you're shooting. They, they emerge in the editing. Um, right. right. No, I, I really, I, mean, I, I have no idea before I start what the themes or the point of view are going to be. And they only emerge at the end of the editing. Because when I start the editing, I, I look at all the rushes, put aside about, after six or eight weeks of viewing the rushes, put aside about half of them. Then over the next six or eight months, edit all the sequences that I think might make it into the final film. And it's only when I, when all the so-called candidate sequences are in close to final form mm -hmm. that I begin to work in the structure. And I make the first assembly uh, in three or four days because at that point all the sequences are available and I know, I think I know them very well and I can make changes quickly and experiment. And the first version of the film comes out is usually 30 or 40 minutes longer. And the final version, then over another six or eight weeks, I work on the internal rhythm within the sequences and the transitions between the sequences and work very hard on trying to find 
uh, the dramatic structure, which is one of the ways that I express my point of view toward the material. Mm. And then when I think the film is finished, I go back, in the case of Monrovia, look at all 120 hours all over again to make sure that there's nothing uh, that I discarded that uh, I w might now find useful because of the editorial decisions that I made. And I always find a sequence or transition shots that I had put aside which solve a problem that I didn't think I had adequately resolved. Mm -hmm. And then the film is finished. Mm. At what point do you start showing the film to other people? I don't show it to other people until it's finished. Yeah. I, I did in the beginning, uh, when I first started, uh, was not you know, helpful. Af after the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, I, f I found it extremely confusing. Mm -hmm. uh, because, And I always thought, whatever somebody else said was right. Yeah. Uh, so I stopped doing it. And I, uh, one of the things I've learned over the years is just to trust my own judgment, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. That's all that I know. And yeah. uh, it doesn't help me to ask. I mean, I'm not saying that's the right way to do it. It's the right way to do it for me. Yeah. How many films in before you, you dropped that practice? One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm sure that, you know, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you ever get the urge to go back and look at older films, your older films? No. Yeah. No. I mean, occasionally if I... When they're to, being screened? If I have to give a talk sometimes, yeah. uh, I might go back and look at it at high speed or read the transcript. Mm -hmm. But I've looked at it so many times in the course of the editing that I yeah. really, once it's done... Yeah. I have no... You don't want to experience it with an audience. I, uh, I, I, and, I, and I also tend to remember, at a time when I can't remember my own name, I remember the films quite well. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah. Is there another film? Are you working on a film now? No, I'm not. Well, I, I hope I'll do another one in the next couple of months. But at mm -hmm. the moment, I, I have the uh, rights to a play by Will Eno called The Realistic Joneses. Yeah. And I'm trying to put on a production of it in France. In French. French, yeah. Uh, so that's my next big project. I mean, I'm, I'm going back to France in a couple of weeks because we have a reading of the film for some theaters, uh, and I hope it'll be selected and put on in the season 2019-20 in Paris. You've been living the expatriate's life over there for a while, huh? <laughs> yeah, the food's good in Paris. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, in France, doing a fair share of acting, I might add. Wow, that's oh, come on. That, that's no. It, uh, I mean, I, I had a small second. part in a TV series, Sada. and I had a small part in an eight-minute oh, movie, come on now. and I'm a cutaway in another movie. <laughs> uh, uh, and you were brilliant a, in a all brilliant, of them. A brilliant career. <laughs> Even though they I, cut all your dialogue out of the last I one. I put it all on my resume. <laughs> uh, uh. But are there, I, I, I know that you know, you're saying that for for uh, Monrovia, Indiana, you said that you wanted to make a movie in the heartland, right, at that particular moment in right. time. Um, does that kind of desire to, to, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is I know that you're often presented with the opportunity to film specific places, as in the case of Boxing Gym, because you met someone who, you know, knew of this place, you went right. there, you decided. But 
Um, are there other instances of, of films where you're actually uh, drawn to going to a particular place or examining a particular kind of well, activity? Well, most of the films, I mean, I, for example, I want to do a film about department stores. So f in my mind, yeah. the department store in America was Neiman Marcus. So I called up Neiman Marcus. Uh, for the film that became model, I was in the dentist's office one day reading, which is the only place I read People magazine, or admit to reading People magazine, yeah. and uh, mm -hmm. there was an article about a model agency, and I was 48, and I figured that was the right age to do a movie about a model agency. <laughs> uh, uh, and yeah. so I called up a couple of model agencies, and yeah. they both said yes, and I picked one. Uh -huh. But I mean, um, it, it's, uh, I, uh, for some reason or other, I, I have several ideas, and then one of them appeals to me for one reason or another yeah. at the moment, and I can gin up enough enthusiasm to want to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, it, and, and it's whether it's doable or not, too. Um, yeah, and, and yeah. sometimes it takes place in a building, yeah. a single building like welfare, some take, sometimes it's a rather large geographical area like mm -hmm. Monrovia, and sometimes it's a couple of buildings. I mean, it, you know, I mean, I, I, because, you know, I, this perhaps phony notion of an institutional series, because I have no precise definition of institution except really a place that interests me and has existed for a while and has geographical boundaries of some sort or another, but I have a very fluid idea of what's a geographical boundary. Because, I mean, Monrovia is over a large territory. Belfast, Maine is a canal zone. Um, and on the end, welfare is in one building. And Ex Libris is a New York Ex Libris is a New York over, uh, three boroughs. Yep, yep. Um, I want to do something that, that I, I had thought about that um, came up in a conversation a few years back when you were uh, talking about a book that you had read by Helen Vendler um, about poetry. I think probably about Stevens, maybe, or? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm I mean, sure. she, yeah, she, uh, she's got a uh, great book uh, about Emily Dickinson. About Emily and, Dickinson. Uh, and she, oh man, the, the book about sonnet, Shakespeare's sonnets. I mean, she's a terrific critic. Oh, but I don't remember which book it came up in, but you said that you had read some, there was something that Helen Vendler had written about poetic structure that for you was a real Well, no, I mean, it's just that I, in, in reading her analysis of poems, I learned a lot about the structure of poems. Yeah. And it may, I mean, it's not a direct transfer, yeah. and it would be presumptuous for me to say there's a direct transfer, but I, it, it, it helped me clarify my effort to think about the structure of movies because I worked very hard on the structure of the movies. It, it, it's not the order of the sequences in the film is nothing to do with chance. The shooting is all organized around chance and, and the editing is, is, is the reverse. I, I mean, editing is talking to yourself and since I enjoy talking to myself, uh, 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 <laughs> uh, I have to, what's involved in the editing is no matter, even if I've arrived at a cut because I've dreamt it, which has happened, or I've thought of it in the shower, editing, I have to be able to rationalize, I have to be able to explain to myself 
why every shot is there, what its relationship is to the shot that precedes it or follows it, how the first 10 minutes of the film is related to the last 10 minutes of the film. And if I can't do that, there's a problem. So I, and even though I may have arrived at the cut in, you know, in non-rational ways, I, I, I have to explain the choices I make to myself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe open it up for questions from the audience. And so this gentleman's hand went right up. So wait a minute. Hi there. Uh, this is a question about uh, shooting. Um, when you've made your films, do you only use one camera? Have you ever used more than one camera? No. Uh, only uh, for there's 90 seconds of La Danse, which was shot with a second camera. Uh, the uh, the end, the graduation ceremony in basic training, I had two cameras. And for juvenile court, the sequences in the courtroom, uh, there was a second camera which was in a fixed position with a thousand foot magazine, which means it could run for about 30 minutes. And it was, it was uh, focused on the a judge because it was impossible to cover the judge, the defense lawyer, the prosecuting lawyer, and the witness uh, uh, with one camera. But so set up the camera in the back of the courtroom. It was always running, it was always on the judge, and we covered everybody else with, in the usual way. You were, those are the only times. Related to that question, by the way, the other night you were talking about your relationship with your cameraman, John Davey, which goes back many years, and how you guys have it all down to a series of signals. Well, we, you know, we work very closely together. John is a great cameraman, and we, we have signals that we use. I pick out, we get shot. We look at rushes almost every night. Uh, we have pretty standard ways of shooting certain kinds of events because we've done it. I mean, for a meeting, for example, you know, you, you need wide shots, and you need to have shots behind the person that's chairing the meeting, and you shoot cutaways, wins when the meeting gets somewhat boring and, and you're always prepared to go back to the speak, whoever is speaking, because you, uh, and you have to be all ready. It's a terrible mis mistake to stop, to try and stop and start, because inevitably, it's the only rule that, that applies. If you think that something interesting is gonna, not gonna, uh, something interesting is not gonna happen, or you're bored, you turn off the camera, that's the moment when the most interesting thing happens. I went to City College Film School. You may know the Dave Davidson, why his parents named him Dave Davidson, I don't know, but you may know of him. I don't know, but anyway, he uh, <clears throat> made sure we saw Titicut Follies, your first film, right, and then followed by High School. Came, we, we analyzed those, so that was interesting, and I never got to meet you till now. But um, that was back in the early 90s. But I'm wondering who the filmmakers that inspired you and have and and maybe to this day, is there anyone that really makes you you know turn your head around even now? Uh, I, I have arthritis in my neck. <laughs> uh, 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 but uh, I, you know, I don't watch many movies because I don't have time. And I uh, and I, I think you know I, I got started at a time a few years after the technological advances which made it possible to shoot sync sound documentaries were made. And th there was a film that I saw called Mooney versus Fall, sometimes called Football, uh, uh, about two high school 
teams in Miami getting ready for a championship game. And that sort of illustrated to me the possibilities of the technique. Um, and so I uh, then informed myself about it. And when I, uh, a couple of years after that, when I wanted to start making movies, I, you know, used that technique and done it. I mean, the technique has been the same from the beginning. Small crew, handheld camera, uh, you know, camera, tape recorder, and an assistant who changes the mags when we shot on film and now changes the cards. But there are fiction filmmakers that you, I mean, you know, there's a lot of... Oh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, lots, I mean, lots of, I mean, in terms of documentary filmmakers, the documentary filmmaker I admire the most is Marcel Ophuls. Uh, uh, Sorrow and the Pity, Hotel Terminus. I mean, it's a completely different style in mine, but he, he made brilliant movies, and, and unfortunately, he's, he's not work. He hasn't worked for a while. Uh, uh, and but I think I've learned more about how to make a movie from the books I've read than the movies I've seen, um, uh, because I think the uh, whatever the form it is, the the abstract issues are the same. They're issues of the passage of time, characterization, uh, abstraction, uh, 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 and and whether you're writing a novel or writing a play or writing a poem, you, you're you're dealing with those issues, and I'm dealing with those issues all the time in in making the movies. And I don't think there's any one-to-one -one relationship between reading a book and something I do in a movie. But generally speaking. Uh, when I read, uh, I particularly I think of how those problems are solved in the novel I'm reading or the poem I'm reading, and then so that makes me more aware of how to try and resolve similar issues, but in a different way in making a movie. So I think my mo movies are more novelistic than they are journalistic, for example, in, in term, particularly in terms of the structure. I want to ask you about what you said about forming an opinion about the presentation. Uh, and I'm going to ask you about a movie that occurred over 50 years ago. And it was High School USA. Can you recollect that movie? I, I'm, high School so, USA. Hi, you mean Fred's movie, High School? Yeah. yeah. Just High School. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There may have been another one, High School USA. So you're saying forming an opinion. Well, it just so happened that uh, I went to that high school. And in your presentation, I thought, I could be wrong, but I thought that you were presenting high school as a place where uh, children learn patriotism, Americanism, and that they were preparing us to fight in Vietnam. Uh, is that correct? Uh, you may feel that way because the, the principal of the school at the end of the film reads a letter from a recent graduate uh, who is in Vietnam, and he writes the letter before he, he says he's going to be dropped behind the demilitarized zone, and he, in case he's killed, he wants to leave his, his insurance money uh, to the school. Um, and uh, the, I think this is an example of a, a structural or thematic uh, issue. Uh, uh, I, I think that that letter, uh, the, that letter is placed at the end of the film not so much as an attitude to the war in Vietnam, although I think that's implicit, 
but as a suggestion that um, uh, one product of this high school is the uncritical uh, and rather unthinking acceptance uh, of the need to fight a stupid war like the war in Vietnam. Yes. I'd like to reassure you that most of us didn't go to Vietnam. We, in fact, went to anti-war rallies. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Uh, in fact, this gentleman says that, most of, that he and most of his friends did not go to Vietnam, but they went to anti-war rallies. They went? Anti-war rallies. Ah. Well, but that, it's not, the, the, that letter at the end of the film was not a critique of the students. It was a critique of the attitude of the, of the principal. I thought you might like to know that you have a kindred spirit in Umberto Eco. You say that uh, you make movies. He has said and written that he writes, that, that not, doesn't write fiction, which he did, or nonfiction, semi, papers on semi, semiotics and so forth, that there's a continuum. At one end, there's poetry, which you obviously admire, which is, gets most of its import from sound and rhythm. And at the other end, there's, I don't know, writing about semiotic uh, academic papers or legal writing or something. And that is also writing. They're all creating artificial, if you like, imagined worlds, which is what you do. I wonder if you see films uh, as a spectrum in that way, the fiction in one place and what you do in another. You know, I, I'm, I don't think in those terms. Uh, you know, I understand that some people do, and, and I'm in no way critical of thinking in those terms. I just don't think that way. I mean, it's not a question that occurs to me. Hi. Um, so I attempt to make films, and this last year I've, I failed pretty terribly at making a documentary, and it was a very difficult experience, but I would be, I would be really curious to hear if, if you feel that you have failed at any point and how that failure has, has been a part of your creative process or a part of your career. And maybe you haven't failed, um, but if you have failed in some way, I'd love to hear about it. It's a good question. It's a question about failure. Um, this gentleman tried to make a documentary, he said, and failed miserably at it. That, that's crushing, but I, I you know, I, but but something to be learned from. Um, and the question is, did you, do you have any failures that you, that you experienced well, and that you drew from? Not that I think I'm aware of, but that doesn't mean that as a film is not a failure. Uh, but you know, I may be more self-delusional than you are. Hi, um, I read recently that you worked for a time as a city planner or an urban planner. And I was wondering, well, first of all, if that's correct, and second, has that informed any of your films um, about cities or small towns? So, so uh, did you work as a city planner? No, well, I, I worked uh, from 1966 to 1970 in a consulting company, and one aspect of the consulting company uh, I didn't do city planning, but I, some of the other people did. After you it got was your a law company degree. that, that yeah. profited off all the various government uh, programs that were meant to aid poor people. And we were middle class people who did very well off <laughs> the programs. Uh, and then I, I stopped out as soon as I had an opportunity to work full time making the movies. But if you were around, I think the second part of the question is if you were around city planning, let's say, did it inform your... I, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. 
Did you did you chime in during the city no, planning I mean, scenes? I'm not Monrovia, knocking city Indiana. planners, but I mean, I, I just didn't have that much to do with anybody yeah. Uh, yeah. doing city planning. There were people in in the group, but that wasn't the part of the group that I was associated with. Now you have to swing your head around because somebody over here is going to ask a question. Uh, yeah, I read in interviews that you say that uh, running sound and recording sound is more important than uh, having the camera as the director. Can you talk a little bit about how you run sound now? Mm. That run, it, it's a question about sound. Yeah. Um, and he had made a remark, you said, that, that yeah, sound was more a, important than... an interview around the titty cup follies when you say that... Uh, being the sound person is more important as a director than having the camera. Huh. Um, okay. Well, I like to do my own sound, but I mean, I... Uh, uh, it, it, but more important, or maybe that if you were your own cameraman, maybe well, no, you would find I mean, that it, a little... It, no, I yeah. think what I said uh, was that doing the sound gives me more flexibility to figure out what to shoot. Uh, I, I don't <clears> think, certainly don't think the sound is any more important than picture. I think they're equally important because without good picture and good sound, you don't have a movie. So when you're actually recording, does it look like you with a separate recorder kind of grabbing sound away from where your camera person no, no, is? No, uh, Away from where the camera person is? Yeah, I, sorry if this is too technical. I'm just very interested. It doesn't like, sound you, technical. It just sounds like, in other words, you're saying during the shooting, is he somewhere else grabbing sound? Well, no, right, I mean, yeah. It's a, it's a comic little dance between us. I'm usually to the cameraman's left. My job is to get the mic in as close to the person who's <laughs> speaking without being in the frame. Um, and we sort of trying to figure out what the proper framing is. Uh, and sometimes there are radio mics, so I can be a bit further. But usually the mic is just below the frame line or just above the frame line. And sometimes it's in the frame if you're not careful. Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I mean, you, you, we're always sort of fighting for position. But that's okay if it's in the frame now, because you can always paint it out, right? Yeah, well, but that's only <laughs> the last few years. Yeah, that's right. One more question. Yes, right there. Uh, wait for the microphone. Yeah. Is there a dream project that you, you want to do? Uh, someone you, you've never worked with before, or maybe a topic that, that you want to discover? Mm. Do you have a dream project? A dream project? I know that there was a certain newspaper. The White House. <laughs> Currently? Uh, anytime, actually. Yeah, OK. All right. I mean, there seems to be pretty good material now. Yeah, uh, but, it's, but it's all kind of coming out. Yeah. You know, they're using uh, it themselves. Um, but is there, there was a newspaper that you wanted to. Yeah, I never. A certain newspaper that you yeah, almost Yeah, a certain cracked. newspaper, but they didn't give me permission. But subsequently, they gave a couple other people permission. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but are there any other lingering dreams that you... Mm, no. Well, if it were, I wouldn't tell you. Okay, there we uh, go. Uh, uh. That's an excellent place to stop. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thanks, guys. <laughs>
Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.